Hello and welcome to the Orange City Literature Festival. Before we bring in uh, Dr. Baru, I'd like to take a couple of minutes to talk about the fascinating book that he has written, which is released uh, this summer, India's Power Elite, Class, Caste and Cultural Revolution. This book couldn't be more timely as it identifies and dissects the rise of the new power elite in India and the shift from the old establishment. A shift that has become all the more apparent since 2014, but has been brewing for decades before that. The power elite is a term used by the American sociologist C. Wright Mills to describe those that occupy the dominant positions in the dominant institutions like economic, political and military of a dominant country. Taking off from that, the book looks at changes in politics, business, culture, bureaucracy and media in contemporary India to understand who is the new elite, how this new group of elite was created and what this means for Indian society. Sanjay, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Uh, my first question is really rather simple to get us off the block. What led you to write this book? And uh, if you could break down for our audience, what is the new power elite and how is it different from the old elite? Thank you very much, Sunaina. Uh, thank you, Sanjeevni, for the introduction. I'm delighted to be here once again at the Orange uh, City Literature Festival. But I'm sorry that I'm not there in person in Nagpur. Uh, I would have loved to be there. Uh, but thank you to the organizers for, for uh, hosting this session. Thank you, Sunana, for reading my book. I have a copy here, which I can hold it up for those who are viewing. Uh, that's the, uh, the copy of the cover of the book. Um, what led me to write this book? Well, the book in some ways has been in my mind for a long time. As I explained uh, in the introduction, I read Wright Mills uh, many, many years ago when I was a student of politics and economics. And uh, as I've lived in Delhi now for almost uh, three decades, I've observed the nature of power in Delhi, the shifting uh, you know, political uh, kind of support basis of that power, changes in business. I have been in the media, uh, business media, uh, and have looked very closely at how you know, different business groups have come and gone. Uh, as I quote in my book, a communist leader who said that in Nehru's time, um, we had Tata Birla ki sarkar, and now we have Adani Ambani ki sarkar. And that itself is an important power shift in the country. Um, so looking at all of this over the years and reading stuff on, you know, the nature of Indian power elite, uh, I've been wanting to write this book for a long time. And fortunately, COVID provided the final opportunity. The lockdown months sitting at home, uh, nothing much to do. And luckily, I had a lot of the literature I referred to uh, with me. So I didn't have to go out to a library to do the research. And I was able to put this book together. Now, on the question that you ask, uh, you know, who are the uh, power elite? Uh, or rather, what is the nature of that shift? I think the best way to sum it up is um, you know, refer to the famous quote uh, statement of uh, a very, very distinguished uh, socialist leader, Ramanohar Lohia. Uh, Lohia is a very underrated leader today. Pe very few people are aware of his writings. Uh, when I was a student, he was very much in the news because many of the individuals uh, in, who were rising in politics at that time, Mulayam Singh Yadav, Lalu Prasad Yadav, you know, a whole lot of uh, politicians from Northern India, from backward caste, uh, owed their allegiance to the ideas of Raman Orloya. 
And Loya said very famously in a very important essay written in the late 50s, that India's ruling class is defined by three characteristics. One, they are upper caste. Two, they, are, they have inherited wealth. And three, they are English speaking. And that is in the late 50s. When we look at the same power elite today, it's very clear to us that that is no longer the case. Uh, first of all, uh, the, it is no longer upper caste. If you look at uh, not just the political leadership, but also business leadership in many parts of the country, uh, you, you see a lot of people from the middle caste uh, in, in the political and the business elite. Second, um, the inherited wealth is no longer important. Uh, in fact, in both uh, Ambani and Adani, uh, who are today's billionaires and the most uh, wealthy businessmen, uh, neither of them uh, benefited from inherit inherited wealth. I mean, Mukesh did, but his father was first-generation entrepreneur. Uh, and, and then you look around, there are lots of first-generation entrepreneurs. I mean, uh, uh, you know, in areas like pharmaceuticals, in IT, Infosys, as, you know, Naran Murthy and his group, and so on. So inherited wealth is no longer as important uh, as newly created wealth. And right now in India, we are seeing, you know, the startup boom and the rise of uh, what are called unicorns and you know, new billionaires in services sector. All of this is first-generation wealth. And the third change, which is again significant, is the elite are no longer English-speaking. I mean, this hit me, for example, when I was editor of the Financial Express and later of the Business Standard, that uh, we actually had a Gujarati language and a Hindi language uh, edition of our newspaper. And it, it uh, then occurred to me that, you know, the, the uh, you know, financial papers, audience of financial papers, as you would all know, are essentially people who are in the stock market, who, who are interested in you know, investing and in saving, investing uh, and play the market. That's the bulk of the, of the kind of readership of financial newspapers. And in the past, it was assumed that whoever has money, whoever invests money, whoever has any interest in money, uh, know the English language. But we discovered that in places like Gujarat and even in Northern India, uh, there are many wealthy people who don't operate through English. Uh, they're operating through their mother tongue. So we had to have a Gujarati edition of the Financial Express and also the Business Standard. So you're, and of course in politics, I mean, the language of politics today is the vernacular. I mean, it's Hindi in Northern India, but Bengali in Bengal, Telugu in uh, Andhra Pradesh, you know, Malayalam in Tamil, etc., etc. So that's the kind of change that I'm looking at in this book. That's fascinating. Uh, so, uh, you know, one question uh, that I was thinking of as I was reading uh, your book is that uh, uh, on the one hand, you of course talk about the rise of the intermediate caste, the OBCs, um, along with how the landowning upper caste have also retained their dominance in politics, whether it's the Jats and Rajputs in the north, whether it is the Patels or Marathas in West India, the Reddies and the Nairs in the south. Uh, so we see power being devolved. We also see it being retained by old beneficiaries. Can you talk a little about this multiplicity of elites? Uh, is it a positive thing? What does it mean for Indian democracy? Well, it's certainly positive. I mean, any plurality in society is positive. Uh, so if there are new elites emerging in different parts of the country, that is positive. And that is a product of what I essentially see as very uneven levels of development in different parts of India. For example, we see in uh, Gujarat, Maharashtra, 
Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, Andhra Pradesh, the, and what is now Telangana. In these uh, six states, uh, there has been tremendous economic development, agrarian change, agrarian growth, and the Green Revolution, particularly in peninsular India, created a new class of rich peasants, of course, also in Haryana and Punjab. And so in, in this part of India, you have a new agrarian elite uh, that is wealthy, that has migrated into urban areas, that has migrated into manufacturing activity. I mean, you take two sectors like uh, hospitals, private hospitals, uh, or, or, or even education, private education. A large number of our private hospitals and private universities and educational institutions are owned by politicians who have an agrarian route. Uh, so you see this, uh, you know, emerging elite at different levels. So I, in fact, argue that there is a regional elite and a national elite. And of course, from both of them, there is now a globalizing elite. I, my last chapter of my book is dedicated to that. Maybe we can come to that a little later. So you have a regional elite, uh, which is in power in, in different parts of the country. I mean, Maharashtra is a good example. Sharad Pawar and uh, the Thakares, uh, they're very, very powerful regionally not yet uh, in that position, dominant position nationally. Uh, then um, you have in uh, Tamil Nadu, the DMK has all, or the AIDMK have always been in power. And if you look at business in many of the states, the, the newly wealthy come uh, from the state and are investing in the state. Um. So, uh, in fact, since we are talking about business, uh, the thing that you do bring out in the book is the nexus between business and politics, which is not new, of course, it has always existed in India. But uh, you've demonstrated that as business has shifted in India from national to regional, so has the power elite. Can you talk a little about that and also the role of liberalization in 1991 to bring this change? have mentioned business um, the one of the things that you do talk about in the book is the nexus between business and politics which is not always new it has always existed in India uh, since the time of independence but you've demonstrated that as business has shifted in India um, from national to regional so has the power elite can you talk a little about that and the role of liberalization the reforms of the 90s in bringing that change Yes, I think the interesting thing about the 90s is the it was a decade of change. I mean, if you take the last the top 100 business groups in India from 1980, 1990, 2000, uh, and even before 1980, you find there's hardly any change in the top 100 names of the top 100 uh, up to 1990. But between 1990 and 2000, you see a dramatic change. I mean, you see groups which were not even in existence in 1990. Uh, like Sunil Mittal of Airtel or Bunjals of uh, Hero, uh, a lot of new businesses. So liberalization had the impact of facilitating the growth of new businesses. And uh, you know, that changes the composition of the business elite. But that was also interestingly a decade of political change. I mean, in 1991 with the assassination of Rajiv Gandhi, the Nehru Gandhi family went out of uh, politics. Um, and, and you have an emergence of a completely new uh, set of politicians. Um, and, and, you know, even in 2004, Congress could only come back to power with an alliance, with coalition. 
And so you have a very interesting transition happening both on the business side and on the political side. So 1990s, in my view, is a decade of change. Right. And since we are talking about business and politics being uh, being connected, uh, we can see uh, that the rise of the new elites is on one hand a function of the economy. But uh, how important is the cult of an omnipotent leader like Prime Minister Modi in the making of the new elite? Would it have arisen without him? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think the process of change is more fundamental. But the reason in my book I begin by focusing on Modi is for two reasons. One, you know, I mean, while we had Devagoda earlier as a prime minister who was from the backward caste, Modi was the first popularly elected powerful middle caste political prime minister in the country. Till then, um, Manmohan Singh, of course, was Sardarji. There was upper caste dominance at the national level, even when at the state level, you see a transition uh, from middle caste, uh, from the upper caste to the middle caste in terms of power. So Modi symbolizes the arrival of these middle castes. I mean, what we call the Mandal you know, you know, groups uh, who came to, uh, you know, into political uh, importance during the 80s. But Modi was the first prime minister from the backward class. And that changes the nature of the Congress of the BJP. I mean, BJP under Vajpayee was very much an upper caste party. Um, but uh, Modi, you know, has consciously uh, changed the caste base of, of the BJP. It's interesting that in a recent cabinet reshuffle, the government actually put out a press statement giving the caste composition of the, of, of the, of the cabinet, which is uh, for the first time, you know. The second reason I, I begin by looking at Modi is that he, uh, unlike Atal Bihari Vajpayee, came to power challenging what he called Luthien's Delhi and the Khan market gang and you know the Delhi elite. Uh, I argue in my book that Atal Bihari Vajpayee um, you know, absorbed this elite. He incorporated them uh, into his governance. And I quote a famous uh, column of Swapandas Gupta, who is a BJP MP in parliament now, who wrote sometime in the late 90s, uh, criticizing Vajpayee saying, why are you depending on the old elite? I mean, we should create our own elite. It's a very interesting you know, uh, argument. And I think that is something which Modi has done, which is to create his own elite. That's interesting. It kind of foretells what was lying ahead. But uh, as you as you said, uh, and as we know, uh, that uh, the new elite has been created alongside a takedown of the old elite in, in a way. And the old elite has been portrayed in public perception as a self-serving privileged group of people, which is out of touch with the majority of the country. Do you think that's a charge that stakes? Is there truth to it? Sorry, my, uh, last, what did you say then? Do you think? That, is there truth to that? Uh, the fact that this elite is out of touch with the majority of what this country is? Or is it more of a convenient way of, um, of for the takedown? Yeah, I think it's more of a convenient way of takedown. I mean, uh, the point I make is that the nature of power is shifting from a class that was more comfortable in the English language to a class that is more comfortable in the vernacular. You know, that is the shift that is happening, which of course doesn't mean that those of us who operate in the English language are not aware of what is happening in the country. You know, I don't think that alienation is, 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 is uh, because of language. There is a certain alienation of the elite that has always been there. 
I mean, you know, even before independence, you know, always the elite, there's a level of alienation. And and today, I think that alienation has gone to the point where many of them are actually leaving the country. And I talk about the secession of the successful. But I think the, the, the point I make is that, you know, um, 20 years back, if you went to a dinner in, uh, in, in any city, I mean, Delhi, Bombay, Bangalore, any, any urban environment, uh, people would, uh, you know, would use forks and spoons uh, and those who did not know how to use a fork and knife or spoon would feel uncomfortable. And I've seen this myself. I'm sure many of us are familiar with those situations. But today you will find that people are not so worried. I mean, they, they, don't, they don't shy away from using their hand. So I use the metaphor of, of you know, those who are kind of eat with fork and spoon and those who eat with their hand as the change in the nature of the elite. Uh, and, I, and I think that is the kind of a cultural change that you find happening in the country. And that's interesting because the new elite claims that they represent those who were not represented earlier, uh, those who were excluded, those who did not belong to privileged families or were not English speaking. What would you say of this new elite? Is it as disconnected from the people of India as the old elite? Well, I think what I would say is, of course, by and large, um, all elites remain disconnected from their environment. I mean, for example, if you today look at the Indian media and look at the arguments or discussion about the performance of the economy, you know, everybody says the economy was on the bounce back, recovery has happened, growth is happening, V-shaped recovery is what the government says. But the reality is that what we have is what is what I call a K-shaped recovery, which is a V at the top but a decline at the bottom. Unemployment has gone up, poverty has gone up. You know, people, the migrants who left cities are, are not coming back. So there is, in fact, increased distress. And how many of us talk about it? You know, and, and that is a kind of alienation that has always been there. But I think the new phenomenon in India, particularly in the last decade or so, is the outmigration of the elite. I mean, the number of Indians who are leaving the country, or at least have two kind of homes, one in India, one in Dubai or Singapore or London or wherever. Uh, and, and a lot of young, bright young Indians leaving the country. Uh, I think this is a new phenomenon which we have seen uh, escalate just over the last, maybe last 20 years at the most. Uh, so would you say this is something that has increased and is, has not really been mapped? Because uh, this is also something that has always been part of our discourse in many ways, right? The it's been part of the discourse in the sense that, you know, even in the past, we used to talk about brain drain, etc. But the phenomenon is qualitatively different. I've given some numbers just to, you know, you quote one number. The total amount of foreign exchange used to pay for education abroad between 2009 and 2014, which is not too far back, you know, the, the second uh, term of Manmohan Singh's government, 2009 to 14. Uh, was $1 billion per year, right? Indians were spending a billion dollars per year paying for tuition, travel, etc. to go out of the country and study. In 2014-19, it went up to uh, what, $10 billion per year, from 1 to 10, a tenfold increase in the amount of money being spent on studying abroad or you know, going, uh, living abroad. Sir. So I think the phenomenon is qualitatively different. There is a, a huge outmigration of talent, of elite, not just, not necessarily of talent, often of wealth without talent, 
wealthy people leaving the country. I mean, they are not necessarily the talented people. Uh, and, and I think that is a more recent phenomenon. And why do you think that is? Well, I think it's for two reasons. One, the, there is a global demographic shift, which means the developed countries need people. The population growth is falling in Europe, in the US, in uh, UK, in Canada. So those countries are attracting more people. India has a lot of young people and therefore they're being tempted away. Canadians have very, very favorable programs for uh, in-migration of Indians. Uh, so the, the fact that these countries have a declining population growth, rising old age, um, elderly population uh, means that the opportunities are there and Indians are English speaking or at least know enough in English, even if not very good. Uh, and so these opportunities are there for Indians more than for many other uh, people. The second factor, of course, is what I call push factor. I mean, this is the pull factor. There is a push factor, not enough opportunities in India, unhappiness with life here, people wanting to get away. I mean, and that is increasing. That is increasing more as things become more and more difficult uh, at home. Definitely the push and the pull, and 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 one of the things that uh, that you bring out in the book, which is fascinating, as you as you categorize the elites into three categories: the national, the provincial, and the global, is uh, is actually talking about the global Indian elite uh, and how this is a phenomena of the current times, and also the political regime, which is trying to establish a relationship with the global Indian elite. Uh, the Indians who live outside of the country. Uh, do you think that is to do uh, with an assertion of identity by NRIs? Um, what explains the ascent of the global Indian elite? Well, it's not identity. I mean, I think there is a certain element of alienation. I think there, there, there is a dis growing disconnect between this class of Indians and what is happening at home. Uh, and uh, that worries me. Because, you know, um, as I said, everybody who's leaving the country is not necessarily talented. Uh, but there is a substantial amount of talent and talent at various levels. I mean, you have the, the best and the brightest uh, going and working in, in, in very you know, good places overseas. But you have a lot of, uh, you know, technically qualified people, you know, engineers or I mean, plumbers, electricians. You, know, you go to Middle East, all over West Asia. The entire construction sector is manned by Indians. Right. Uh, to go back to uh, what you just brought up, the question of uh, the role of media, really. And uh, of course, you have an insider's view on Indian media. You've been in the thick of it as the former editor, as the media advisor to former Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. What role do you think the media has played in propping up the new elite, in taking down the old order? And is media also a part of the new elite? Well, so last question, yes. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about the book uh, that C. Wright Mills wrote. Um, he has an entire chapter on what he calls celebrities. And the media are included among the celebrities. But of course, celebrities also includes Hollywood, etc. And their role is important as opinion makers. They craft uh, opinion, they craft uh, outlook, they shape public perception. And therefore, the media plays an important role. Uh, nature of the media has changed, uh, both at the top and at the bottom end of the spectrum. I mean, the, at the top you find, uh, for example, the, the, the what what is you know, in courts called national media, which is essentially Delhi-based media, um, is well, you know financially well off. The kind of salaries that journalists get 
in uh, television, in many of the major uh, publications. And uh, it has created very wealthy journalists in the, in the last 20, 30 years. But at the bottom, or rather the uh, base pyramid of uh, media pyramid, you have uh, emergence of very powerful Indian language media uh, playing a very important political role at the state level, uh, shaping opinion at the state level. Because even at the national level, in the sense, in the media in, in a large part of northern India. But at the state level, Indian media is now far more important. And you know, English media, is, uh, particularly English print, is less and less important in terms of shaping opinion. So if you use C. Wright Mill's view that if media is a part of the power elite because they shape opinion, they shape attitudes, they facilitate the rise or decline of uh, you know, powerful individuals and groups, uh, then the, the, the change in the nature of the media does make a difference. And I think under Modi, what we have seen is a clamping down on the media, um, a kind of unabashed uh, use of power uh, by the political class. Um, uh, of course, we also see an unabashed use of power by the business class uh, to suborn media. And there's an increasing suborning of the Indian media. Um, okay, so I actually want to shift this conversation to um, to perhaps uh, looking at what the role of the elite um, in India could be. Uh, and and there is there's an essay by the uh, Pankar Gupta, the sociologist, where he wrote about a decade ago on the elite in India and their role in society, and about how any change in democracy is driven not by citizens by the but by the citizen elite. And uh, essentially, it's a revolution from the top uh, and India, which has uh, not been able to deliver on aspects of development like health, education, livelihood needs a revolution from above a band of citizen elite to initiate that change. So first of all, you know, where do you stand on this? Do you think that that change will come from the citizens or from the citizen elite? And uh, is this new section of elite uh, ready to initiate any such change? No, in fact, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, when I wrote my book, I was reflecting on Dipankar's argument. Um, my book goes contrary to Dipankar. <laughs> because what I'm arguing is the alienation of the elite. So while Dipankar sees some hope, that he sees the elite as an agent of change. I'm afraid the elite have failed to be an agent of change. I mean, right now we are living through a situation where uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, distress, unemployment, uh, unhappiness, etc. And um, while many are trying, I don't think there's a lack of effort, but the impact is uh, marginal. Um, the Therefore, the question to ask is, why is it that this, uh, this liberal elite beneficiaries of the last 70 years, you know, the liberal elite have been the beneficiaries of the last 70 years. Why is it that they, they don't seem to count in what is happening in, in the country today? Uh, why is it that the, even the opposition to Modi is coming from regional leadership? I mean, if you look at the politics of the country today, the biggest opposition to this uh, BJP dominance, which is Hindu, Hindi, uh, North India kind of dominance, um, is coming from a Mamta Banerjee in Bengal or a DMK in Tamil Nadu or a left in Kerala. You know, it's a regional kind of uh, political leadership, uh, which is challenging. 
the at the national level the congress party is virtually shrinking and 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 uh, you know, disappearing um so i think this is interesting that the old elite uh, have lost influence um and are not able to shape a discourse i mean you take a simple thing like education policy in most modern societies around the world historically education which is the fundamental agent of change of progress of empowerment you know whether empowerment of women empowerment of new social groups education is such an important phenomenon in changing society in empowering individuals and yet there is so little focus on education today among the elite what the elite is doing is to simply leave the country and go away you know to in search of better education uh, rather than stay here and improve what is available here so you have more hope for change being initiated by the citizens i do actually even when i look yes. at the protest movements and uh, the fact that a lot has changed in the last decade including uh, what social media has done in many ways absolutely change has to come from below change has to come from below right um so uh, we we don't have much time left and i still want to get in a few more questions uh to shift the the tone over here i actually read a column of yours in which you wrote that the power elite in india never admits to its status that those that you have identified as the new elite in your book have denied their elite status is it that they are not aware of their status as the new elite or is it uniquely indian as you said to be for humble uh because i would have thought that this new elite would want to declare it is here and for us to take notice well i think there is where there is a certain uh, um schizophrenia uh of the elite uh that you want to be seen uh, as the powerful but you don't want uh, to face the consequences of being identified as a powerful so there is a certain schizophrenic character to the elite is unfortunately not a idea that i've explored in the book it's an interesting question and yes there was a column i wrote but you know the many ideas that have come since i've written the book that that have gone into various columns uh, and and certainly this is this is one of those um i think the real problem with with the, with india today is that uh, those of those, those social groups who my identify as elite feel very uncomfortable with that status um because essentially the underlying social attitude in our country is still one of denying your wealth denying you know the the the, the nouveau riche who claim their wealth who demonstrate their wealth i mean like mukesh ambani's you know <laughs> tower in bombay i mean this is the new kind of rich uh, are still uh, uh, conflicted about you know their 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 status right uh well uh, i i would actually like to know now uh, since this is a literature festival um to shift the conversation from political analysis to also understand your process as a writer how do you try to maintain objectivity when you write on what is actually become extremely fraught debates of our times well you know i i'm a non fiction writer i have not written fiction yet and um, 
I don't believe in objectivity when it comes to writing. I think we try, we, whatever we write is our views, and these are my views. I've always said this, um, you know, even uh, with the book that became a bit controversial, The Accidental Prime Minister, I said, look, this is my view. And I quote a lovely uh, quote from my distinguished predecessors, H.Y. Uh, Shard Sharda Prasad, who was the media advisor to Indira Gandhi for 13 years. And um, he once uh, drew attention to the Jap famous Japanese film, uh, Rashomon, Akira Kurosawa's film, Rashomon, where the story is of a, an event that happens where three different witnesses have three different versions of that event. And that is generally referred to as the Rashomon effect. That, you know, we can all be present at the same event, but have a different view of how it happened. And I think that that's, that has to be true for whatever one writes. So when I write something, I'm saying that, look, this is the way I look at it. That doesn't mean it's the most objective way of looking at it. There may be others who say, oh, no, that's not what happened. I think it, you know, something different happened. And that doesn't mean I'm lying uh, or that doesn't mean someone who disagrees with me is lying. It's not a question of you know, truth and a lie. It's a question of perspective. And therefore, I say I come to whatever I write with my perspective. Um, it, it, others may not agree with that perspective, but it's my perspective. Absolutely. And uh, is there another book in the works? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to write something. Right now, my brain is not as sharp as it was. Uh, when I wrote this book, so I, I, I the was so productive for you. Yes, yes, indeed. In fact, I got three books out during the COVID. One, two of them I edited. Uh, you know, which I just mentioned the one on uh, fifty years of U.S.-China relations, and another one on the post-COVID economy. Both were edited volumes, but uh, of course, Power Elite is my own book. Right, and uh, and what is uh, what what is it that is occupying your thoughts for the time being? Uh, it's a small book. It's not a big one. It's about seventy-five years of the economy. Uh, August twenty twenty-two, India is going to turn seventy-five. Uh, so a lot of books are looking at what happened in these seventy-five years. But I've decided that my book will will be focused towards uh, you know young people, basically high school and college students. Um, you know, the new generation to explain to them what happened in the, in the last 75 years. Really looking forward to that. And um, for the sake of our readers, uh, as my final question to you, if you can share a book on contemporary India that you have found interesting in recent times. On contemporary India? Well, the book I've just finished reading is Amitav Ghosh's book, The Nutmeg's <laughs> Course on you know, the Impact of Climate Change and the Role of Colonialism imperialism. I'm afraid I've not read anything new on contemporary India um, because I, I, I kind of think that I know India enough not to waste my time reading books about India. I read books about other countries and other and Amitav Ghosh's book of course is a fantastic book. That is something I would strongly recommend. Similarly there's another very good by Vinay Lal on a virus. On, on viruses and um, I think that's also a classic because we are all suffering from coronavirus or COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. I think he looks at the history of viruses and the biology of viruses. Those are the two books I've recently read. Uh, I'm afraid I haven't read much on contemporary India, right? apart from my own work.
<laughs> right. Thank you so much uh, for taking our time for this and uh, for sharing your insights. It was it was really fascinating to hear from you and look forward uh, to to all the books and writing uh, that lies ahead for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Sunaina. And thank you to the Orange City Literature Festival. Beyond.